0: Well, good morning, everybody, and welcome to this seminar in the Tough Questions seminar stream. This morning, we're going to be looking all about the subjects of atheism. Let me just introduce myself first of all. My name is Adrian Holloway. I'm married to my wife, Julia, and we have four children. They're aged 19, 18, 12, and 10, and I'm based at Everyday Church in Wimbledon. And what I'm going to be doing... Uh, this morning is, first of all, we'll have a whole hour together from 11.30 to 12.30. For the first 20 minutes, I'll speak about atheism. Then for the next 20 minutes, we're actually going to watch videos. We're going to watch three quite long videos, so 20 minutes of me talking, 20 minutes of videos. And then in the last 20 minutes, I'm going to invite you to come forward if you have any questions... You can either come and ask a question at this microphone over here where I'm pointing, or there's also a microphone way over here, and uh, I would be delighted to try and respond to any questions that you may have. Just to say, folks, we will finish bang on time at 12.30, and so at half past 12, if you've got more questions, if you'd like to meet me, chat to me about anything, I'm going to come and stand over here, and I'll stay here until they close the tent so we can chat if you'd like to ask more questions. Or it might be that you'd actually like to receive prayer, Uh, We're going to have a ministry team. The ministry team are going to come and stand over this side, and they'd love to pray with you if you'd like them to. Okay, so why don't we get underway and look at this interesting and very relevant subject. Folks, one of the most amazing things that I saw on TV this summer was Storms' headline set at Glastonbury. At the end of his version of Ultralight Beam, which is basically a long prayer, Stormzy said, this is what it sounds like when Glastonbury meets God. This is what it sounds like when South London meets salvation. This is a God dream. This is everything. Then in Blinded by Your Grace, part one, the lyrics, as you know, are, I'm blinded by your grace... Every night, every day, I was lost, but ever since you found me, I'm blinded by your grace. Through the darkness, you came, and I'll be all right with you by my side. And then, in the crown, he says, Amen, in Jesus' name. Yes, I declare it. Any little seed I receive, I have to share it. Then introducing Blinded by Your Grace part two, he said, we're going to go to church right now. And then the intro lyrics from the choir are, you saved me, you saved me, you saved me, you saved me. Then Stormzy shouted, we're giving God all the glory right now. We're giving God all the glory right now. And then, as you know, Part two starts with, Lord, I've been broken, although I'm not worthy. You fixed me. Now I'm blinded by your grace. You came and saved me. Some of the other lyrics are, I'm up now. Look at what God's done. This is God's plan. They can never stop this. You saved this kid, and I'm not your first, but oh my God, what a God I serve. Now somebody might say to me, yeah, but come on, I mean... There was a lot of swearing as well, yeah? In fact, there was a lot of other language as well as the swearing, language that you just would never hear from the stage at New Day, for example. And yes, you are absolutely right. So that's not the point I'm making. This is a seminar about what we can say as Christians to a friend who says to us, hey, you know, I'm an atheist. And what we can learn from Stormzy is that if we earn the respect of people who don't necessarily believe what we believe, then we can have a bridge of relationship with them and we can bring some of the love of God across that bridge. For example, normally grime or rap artists talk about how great they are. And part of the genre is to then disrespect the competition. You, through the microphone, you diss other artists. That's the norm. Instead, Stormzy praised and lifted up his competition. In front of millions of people live on BBC TV, he praised by name every other British, UK, grime artist he could think of in a long, long, long list. People respect Him for that. They like Him for that. And people who don't yet believe in God and in Jesus will listen to Him and will respect Him. I'm saying all this because later on, we will hear five arguments for God. But arguments alone won't win people. When we earn the respect of the people we're talking to, that's when people will not only be open to the messenger, but they will also be open to our message. Okay, let's imagine that you have a friend at school or at college, and you've just told this friend that you're a Christian, or maybe you mentioned something that happened at your church or Some other comment. Anyway, later on, this same friend says to you, you know, by the way, I'm an atheist. There might be one person in your class who'd say, I'm an atheist. There might be a few in your class or in your year who'd say, I'm an atheist. Or there could be lots. So let's look, firstly, and briefly, there are lots of reasons why people say they're atheists. Let's look at just three. Firstly, when some people say, I'm an atheist, what they mean is, I want to live my life my way. For example, I have a friend who does not believe in God, and this friend expresses his desire to live life the way he wants to by taking drugs. Now one of the hazards of taking drugs is, of course, getting caught. Let's imagine my friend gets caught. In fact, let's imagine that later on my friend ends up in prison. As it happens right now in Britain, loads of people are becoming Christians in prison. In UK prisons, many so-called atheists start believing in God. But the historical and scientific evidence for God is exactly the same whether you're in prison or not. So personal circumstances do make a difference. Many people who say, I'm an atheist, don't really know what atheism is. For example, many people who say, I'm an atheist, will start praying to God if they are on an airplane that's going down. We actually have reports from plane crash survivors which confirms this is the case. The fact is that many people in Britain today who say that they're atheists are not really atheists because a real atheist will still be an atheist in prison. A real atheist who is on a plane that's going down will not pray to God. It wouldn't even occur to them to pray to God because a real atheist is someone who would say that they know that God does not exist. I think that most of the people I've met in my life who have said to me, I'm an atheist are not really atheists. They are really agnostics. What does that mean? Well, let's imagine I take a a blank piece of paper. And now let's imagine that um, I get a pen. And I say to my friend, let's pretend for a moment that all the knowledge in the whole universe, all that information, is all somewhere on this blank piece of paper please could you draw a circle to kind of represent how much of that knowledge in the world, how much of the knowledge you think that you've got. And it doesn't really matter, folks, how big or small the circle is. In fact, usually people draw quite a small circle. You could then say, okay, could it be that somewhere outside of your experience, somewhere else in the universe, that actually God does exist, it's just that you have not yet experienced God. I say nine out of ten, 90 percent of all of the people that I've ever done this with, literally sat down with a pen and a blank piece of paper, nine out of ten have then said, okay, yes, I suppose there could be a God, it's just that I've not experienced Him yet. Folks, those 90 percent are all agnostics. These are people who aren't sure. These are people who don't yet know whether or not God exists. Here's a second reason why people sometimes say, I'm an atheist. Let's imagine that Sam has never come across a real Christian. Let's imagine Sam has no church background. Can I ask you, what would your worldview be if all you had was Netflix and Twitter? If all you had was Instagram and YouTube, if the daily diet of your whole life had been solely popular culture, what would you believe? There are thousands, perhaps millions, of British teenagers who have had zero positive contact with Christians. Some of these secular teenagers would say, I'm an atheist, but what they mean when they say that is that they lack a belief in God. But the absence of a belief in God is not atheism, because on that definition, our pet cat Millie is an atheist. On that definition, we also have an atheist dog called Maisie. Plus, we actually have a pet snail who is also an atheist. So, I think you'll find that once again, these people are not really atheists. They are agnostics. Thirdly, there are some people who would say that they're atheists because they think that everyone has to choose between either science or God. But last year, here in this seminar, I played videos where we watched some of the world's leading scientists explain why they believe in God. So clearly, science and God doesn't have to be an either-or. Some of the world's leading scientists are telling us that science and God is a both-and. Okay, now, let's look at five positive reasons to think that God does exist. I'm going to say something briefly about each of the first three. When we get to number four, we're going to watch 20 minutes of videos. That's how things are shaping up. Let's go ahead with number one. Evidence from the beginning of the universe. Scientists now know that the universe is expanding, and it will continue to expand, and eventually all matter will be spread out in a vast, featureless soup, whereby all the order that we currently see in the universe at that time will have all dissipated into disorder. That's what's known as the heat death of the universe. So the big question is, if the universe will inevitably end up in heat death and disorder, why, if the universe has always existed, Is it not already in a state of heat death? If the universe has existed forever, how come there are currently humans, hotels, airplanes, and computers? The fact that we see so much order today must mean the universe has not yet reached a state of heat death. But the universe should have run out of energy by now. It should have reached heat death by now if the universe has always existed to the fact that the universe that we see is so full of order t- today, that means our universe must have had, boom, a beginning. And amazingly enough, we have a second scientific confirmation that the universe, bang, it began to exist. Modern science has demonstrated that the universe began at a point in the finite Past and that that beginning moment was the beginning of space, time, matter, and energy. This was the Big Bang. In science today, the consensus is that the Big Bang, that moment, was the beginning of space, time, matter, and energy. So, whatever the cause of the universe is, that cause must have existed outside of space, time, matter and energy. A first cause that existed outside of space must be spaceless. A first cause that existed outside of time must be timeless. A first cause that existed before all the matter in the universe existed, that must be an immaterial cause and a first cause that was the source of all the energy in the universe, that cause must be enormously powerful. So actually there was a spaceless, timeless, immaterial, and enormously powerful first cause of the universe, and you could call that first cause God. Number two, evidence from the fine-tuning of the universe. There are a large number of values, quantities, and constants, which, if they had been even very slightly different, there would have been either no universe or no life. These things, like gravity or entropy or the speed at which the universe expands, these things, these numbers could have been different. If you change any of the numbers or values, even a little bit, it means either no universe or no life. This amounts to what scientists call the fine-tuning of the universe. Now, if somebody wins the lottery, we think, "Mm, well, I guess somebody had to win, and I guess you won. I guess you just got lucky. That's what we think. Well, what would you think if the same person won the lottery again the following Saturday night. What would you think if the same person then won again for the next seven consecutive weeks? We would then be talking about the same person winning the national lottery every Saturday night for nine consecutive weeks. Folks, if that happened, you would think, hang on a minute, something fishy is going on here. If somebody won the lottery for nine consecutive weeks, you wouldn't think that they just got lucky. You would think that the game was rigged. Folks, that is exactly the situation that we have with the universe. It looks like the game was rigged. The numbers are so bizarre and so extraordinary. It looks like the game was rigged. Folks, it looks like the entire universe was deliberately set up in such a way as to make advanced organic life on the surface of this planet possible. And that is a very good reason to think that the universe was designed by a designer. Okay, a third reason to think that God exists is what is sometimes called the moral Argument And this is not as complicated as it sounds, because if God does not exist, then as Richard Dawkins correctly says, there is no good and there's no evil, there's just opinion. For example, people think that torturing human beings for fun is wrong. But if God does not exist, then it's not really wrong because there's no objective morality. There's no God. But your atheist friend thinks that torturing human beings for fun is wrong and would still be wrong even if every single other person on earth all thought that it was okay. The point here is that the atheist cannot live consistently as an atheist. And if atheism doesn't work in real life, then it should be rejected. Okay, fourthly, there is also, folks, strong historical evidence that God exists. Let's open this subject up by looking at the truth claims made by a real historical person called Jesus of Nazareth. Let's watch the screens.
1: Ever since the Christian movement began, followers of Jesus Christ have said he was God in human form. But what about Jesus himself? Who did he think he was? With the rise of textual criticism and the modern study of history, historians have developed tools to unlock this question. Today, Jesus of Nazareth is no longer just a figure in a stained glass window, but a real person of history whose life can be investigated historically. So let's examine the New Testament, not as inspired scripture, but as an ordinary collection of ancient documents. Let's apply to them the standard tests we would use with regard to any other ancient sources. When historians investigate the Jesus of history, what do they find? First, Jesus claimed to be the Messiah. The Jews of Jesus' day were waiting for a promised Messiah, a descendant of King David, a warrior king who would bring military victory and spiritual renewal to Israel. They were familiar with the prophet Zechariah's ancient words, "'Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem! Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey.'" Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem on the back of a donkey the final week of his life is attested in independent sources, one of the most important criteria for the historicity of an event. In doing this, Jesus was deliberately and provocatively claiming that he was the promised Messiah, the King of Israel. Moreover, the plaque nailed to Jesus' cross stated the charge against him. In mockery of his messianic claims, The fact that later Christians did not use this derisive title for Jesus underscores its authenticity. For first century Jews, the word Messiah was packed full of meaning. By assuming this title, Jesus was claiming all of this for Himself. Jesus also claimed to be the Son of God. Jesus' consciousness of being God's Son in a unique sense comes to expression in his parable of the vineyard. This parable matches Jesus' teaching style and employs Jewish motifs typical of his day, such as Israel as a vineyard, God as a father, the religious leaders of that time as tenants, and God's prophets as servants sent to the tenants. Once there was a man who planted a vineyard. Before leaving the country... He leased it to tenants. At harvest time, he sent a servant to collect his share of the fruit of the vineyard, but the tenants beat him and sent him away empty-handed. So the owner sent more servants, but these too were beaten or killed. Finally, he sent his one and only son, saying, Surely they'll respect my son. But those tenants said to one another, This is the heir. Let's kill him and the vineyard will be ours. So they killed the owner's son. What do we learn from this parable about Jesus' self-understanding? He thought of himself as the only son of God, God's final messenger, distinct from all the prophets and even the heir of Israel itself. Third, Jesus claimed to be... The son of man. This was Jesus' favourite self-designation, being used some 80 times in the Gospels. This has convinced the vast majority of New Testament historians that Jesus did, in fact, think of himself as the son of man. Notice, not just a son of man, but the son of man. Jesus was directing our attention to a vision, described by the prophet Daniel. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the Ancient of Days, and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. At Jesus' trial, the Jewish high priest accused Jesus, Are you the Messiah, the Son of God? His answer left no room for doubt. I am. And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. By applying all three of these titles to himself, Jesus was claiming in no uncertain terms that he was the very God his accusers worshipped. It's no surprise the Jewish court charged him with blasphemy and condemned him to death. But that's not all. New Testament historians are agreed that the historical Jesus also claimed to have divine power and authority to perform miracles, cast out demons, revise Old Testament law, and forgive sins. He even went so far as to claim that everyone's eternal destiny is determined solely by whether we believe in Him. Jesus' self-understanding cannot be reduced to that of a Jewish teacher or a charismatic leader, no. In fact, by putting Himself in God's place, Jesus was making a far greater claim about Himself than anyone else ever has, before or since. So the question Jesus asked his disciples confronts each of us as well. Who do you say that I am?
0: Even if you never get into any of that with your atheist friend, it's important that you know that there is actually good historical evidence to think that Jesus thought of himself as God. But so what? Well... If you find yourself having doubts about whether or not God exists, for example, maybe you're wondering, well, uh, maybe really the reason I'm a Christian is because I was brought up to believe all this stuff about God and Jesus. Well, please be encouraged to know that there is sound historical evidence for the truth of Christianity. So for whatever is happening or actually not happening in your life right now, The good news is that the historical evidence remains very strong, as we're going to see
2: in our next video. Why was Jesus of Nazareth crucified? Because he made outrageous claims about himself. He claimed to be the one and only Son of God. Why would anyone take his claim seriously? Well, that all depends. If Jesus actually rose from the dead, then his claim to be God's unique son carries considerable weight. On the other hand, if the resurrection never actually happened, then Jesus may be safely dismissed as just another interesting but tragic historical figure. Did Jesus rise from the dead? As we explore this question, we need to address two further questions. What are the facts that require explanation? and which explanation best accounts for these facts. There are three main facts that need to be explained. The discovery of Jesus's empty tomb, the appearances of Jesus alive after his death, and the disciples' belief that Jesus rose from the dead. Let's examine each of these. Fact number one. The discovery that Jesus's tomb was empty is reported in no less than six independent sources. And some of these are among the earliest materials to be found in the New Testament. This is important because when an event is recorded by two or more unconnected sources, historians' confidence that the event actually happened increases, and the earlier these sources are dated, the higher their confidence. Moreover, the Gospels indicate that it was women who first discovered that Jesus' body was missing. This is likely historical because in that culture, a woman's testimony was considered next to worthless. A later legend or fabrication would have had men make this discovery. Our confidence in the empty tomb is further increased by the response of the Jewish authorities. When they heard the report that the tomb was found empty, they said that Jesus' followers had stolen his body thereby admitting that Jesus's tomb was in fact empty. Most scholars by far hold firmly to the reliability of the biblical statements about the empty tomb. Fact number two, the appearances of Jesus alive after his death. In one of the earliest letters in the New Testament, Paul provides a list of witnesses to Jesus's resurrection appearances. He appeared to Peter, then to the Twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Finally, he appeared also to me. Furthermore, various resurrection appearances of Jesus are independently confirmed by the Gospel accounts. On the basis of Paul's testimony alone, virtually all historical scholars agree that various individuals and groups experienced appearances of Jesus alive after his death. It may be taken as historically certain that Peter and the disciples had experiences after Jesus' death in which Jesus appeared to them as the risen Christ. Fact number three, the disciples' belief in the resurrection. After Jesus' crucifixion, his followers were devastated demoralized, and hiding in fear for their lives. As Jews, they had no concept of a Messiah who would be executed by his enemies, much less come back to life. The only resurrection Jews believed in was a universal event on judgment day after the end of the world, not an individual event within history. Moreover, in Jewish law, Jesus's crucifixion as a criminal meant that he was literally under God's curse. Yet somehow, despite all of this, the disciples suddenly and sincerely came to believe that God had raised Jesus from the dead. They were so completely convinced that when threatened with death, not one of them recanted. Even the Pharisee, Paul, who persecuted Christians, suddenly became a Christian himself as did Jesus's sceptical younger brother, James. Some sort of powerful, transformative experience is required to generate the sort of movement earliest Christianity was. That is why, as an historian, I cannot explain the rise of early Christianity unless Jesus rose again, leaving an empty tomb behind him. These three firmly established facts cry out for an adequate explanation. How do you make sense of them? Down through history, various naturalistic explanations have been offered to explain away these facts. The conspiracy hypothesis, the apparent death hypothesis, the hallucination hypothesis, and so on. All of these have been nearly universally rejected by contemporary scholarship. The simple fact is that there is just no plausible, naturalistic explanation of these three facts. The explanation given by the original eyewitnesses is that God raised Jesus from the dead. If it's even possible that God exists, then that explanation cannot be ruled out. For a God who is able to create the entire universe, the odd resurrection would be child's play. An empty tomb, Jesus' appearances alive after his death and a group of dejected followers suddenly transformed by a radical new belief in a risen Messiah. These are independently established historical facts. How do you explain them?
0: Okay, now when I personally first came across, as someone who didn't go to church at the time, I came across this claim that Jesus rose from the dead, I had expected to find that a miracle was the least likely explanation. I had thought that any naturalistic explanation was vastly more probable than the explanation which says that Jesus rose from the dead. But the alternative naturalistic explanations just don't work. Let's watch one final video, and then I'm going to invite you, if you'd like to, to come forward, queue up at the microphones, you can ask any questions you might have. Let's watch the screen.
2: It's a matter of historical record that Jesus of Nazareth died, and his body was placed in a tomb. It's also been firmly established that after his death and burial, his tomb was found empty. Various individuals and groups saw appearances of Jesus alive, and his disciples somehow became absolutely convinced that Jesus had risen from the dead. These are the historical facts. How do you explain them? down through history various naturalistic explanations have been offered to explain away these facts. Let's examine the four most popular ones. First, the conspiracy theory. According to this view, the disciples faked the resurrection. They stole Jesus' body from the tomb and then lied about seeing Jesus alive, thereby perpetrating the greatest hoax of all time. However, this theory faces overwhelming objections. It's hopelessly anachronistic. It looks at the disciples' situation through the rearview mirror of Christian history, instead of from the standpoint of a first century Jew. Jews had no concept of a Messiah who would be defeated and executed by Israel's enemies, much less rise from the dead. In Jewish thinking, the resurrection of the dead was a general event that takes place only after the end of the world and has no connection at all with the Messiah. The conspiracy theory also fails to address the disciples' obvious sincerity. People don't willingly die for something they know is not true. An honest reading of the New Testament makes it clear. These people sincerely believed the message they proclaimed and were willing to die for. For these and other reasons, no scholar defends the conspiracy theory today. A second attempt to explain the facts is the apparent death theory. Jesus didn't really die. He revived in the tomb, somehow escaped, and managed to convince his disciples he was risen from the dead. This theory also faces insurmountable obstacles. First, it's medically impossible. The Roman executioners were professionals. They knew what they were doing and made sure their victims were dead before taken down. Moreover, Jesus was tortured so extensively that even if he was taken down alive, he would have died in the sealed tomb. Second, this theory is wildly implausible. Seeing a half-dead man who crawled out of the tomb desperately in need of bandaging and medical attention would hardly have convinced the disciples that he was gloriously risen from the dead. As a result, no New Testament historians defend this theory today. A third explanation is the displaced body theory. Perhaps Joseph of Arimathea placed Jesus' body in his tomb temporarily because it was convenient. But later, he moved the corpse to a criminal's common graveyard. So, when the disciples visited the first tomb and found it empty, they concluded that Jesus must have risen from the dead. Once again, this theory cannot make sense of the facts. Jewish laws prohibited moving a corpse after it was interred, except to the family tomb. What's more, the criminal's graveyard was located close to the place of execution, so that burial there would not have been a problem. Also, once the disciples began to proclaim Jesus' resurrection, Joseph would have corrected their mistake. So, once again, no current scholars endorse this theory. Finally, the hallucination theory. The disciples didn't really see Jesus, but just imagined that he appeared before them. They were all hallucinating. This theory also faces considerable problems. First, Jesus appeared not just one time, but many times. Not just in one place, but in different places. Not just to one person, but to different persons. Not just to individuals, but to groups of people. And not just to believers, but to unbelievers as well. There is nothing in the psychological case books on hallucinations comparable to these resurrection appearances. Second, hallucinations of Jesus would have led the disciples to believe, at most, that Jesus had been transported to heaven, not risen from the dead, in contradiction to their Jewish beliefs. Moreover, in the ancient world, visions of the deceased were not evidence that the person was alive but evidence that he was dead and had moved on to the afterworld. Finally, this theory doesn't even attempt to explain the empty tomb. Thus, the four most popular naturalistic theories fail to explain the historical facts. Where does that leave us? Another possibility is the explanation given by the original eyewitnesses that God raised Jesus from the dead. Unlike the other theories, this makes perfect sense of the empty tomb, the appearances of Jesus alive, and the disciples' willingness to die for their belief. But is this explanation plausible? After all, it requires a miracle, a supernatural act of God. Think about it. If it's even possible that God exists, then miracles are possible. And this explanation cannot be ruled out. And surely it's possible that God exists. So how do you explain the resurrection?
0: Okay, now I don't have time to get into our fifth and final reason, which is personal experience. But I hope that in this seminar, we have seen that we have got at least four good reasons to think that God exists. Now, if you'd like to ask any questions, uh, please do make your way forward to the microphones. You can ask anything you want. You can ask about the evidence from the origin of the universe. You can ask about the evidence from the fine-tuning of the universe. You could ask about the moral argument, the existence of moral values and duties. Or you can ask a question about the videos we've just seen about the resurrection uh, any question that an atheist might ask you is fair game. If you want to make your way uh, to either of these microphones, there's one here and one here, go ahead straight away, young man, far away.
3: What would you say to an atheist who gives examples of stories which predate biblical ones but seem to strongly resemble Bible stories, for example, the flood?
0: Okay, the question is about what would I say to an atheist who says that they found stories which are recorded before the Bible records the story, kind of suggesting that maybe what the Bible was doing was borrowing from other ancient myths. A flood would be a good example. And I've often heard that particular argument. It can come with the flood. It can come later on with the so-called Gnostic Gospels. First thing I always say is, if there are other ancient cultures around the Middle East or the Near East which are reporting a global flood or some sort of catastrophic event, and you may know that these stories often feature a group of people in a boat that are saved from the flood and start again, I always say that increases my confidence that the Bible's claim that there was this catastrophic event is correct. Later on, when we come to the Gnostic Gospels and people say, well, maybe the story of Jesus rising from the dead is borrowing from such and such a Greek myth, or actually, I found when looking into it that often the borrowing is the other way around. So, for example, many of the stories that grew up in the Roman Empire were often borrowing from Christianity um, rather than the other way around. So, that's a a really good question. Uh, Somebody over here, far away.
3: Yeah, um Do you really believe that uh, God has a plan for everyone? And if so, why would he have a plan for so many people to
0: be atheists and believe in other things? Could you just uh, take the mic off the stand and and speak right into it so that I can hear? I heard about half of it. Yeah, go for it. Um, Do you believe that God has a plan for everyone on this earth, literally everyone? But if you do, then why is his plan for so many people to be atheists? Yes, okay, very good question. Do I believe that God has got a plan for everybody? Because if I did think that, then how, what, what's his plan for all the people that are atheists? Um, I do believe that God uh, has inspired the Bible to be written. And the Bible says that God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him won't perish but will have eternal life. So that's God's offer. But I also believe that God has deliberately set the world up in such a way that he's made it possible for humans to make real choices. Now if those choices are real, then there's a bonus, there's a benefit for God which is if any of us or anyone on earth were to choose to love God, it would be real love, it wouldn't be forced. So we're not robots but we're actually choosing to love God and he chooses to love us back. It's a bit like the difference between a marriage of love and a forced marriage where you're compelled to be with someone against your will. God doesn't want a forced marriage, so he gives us freedom of choice. I'm glad that God has set the world up in that way. Here's why I'm glad. I have a friend called Tom, who I play football with. I play six-a-side, dad's football, with Tom on a weeknight each week. Tom would hate to be forced to live... With the Christian God in heaven forever. He has told me so on many occasions. Tom dislikes the God of Christianity. Can you imagine a God? What kind of God would God be if he forced Tom against his will, compelled Tom to go to heaven forever? I'm glad that Tom gets to choose. Tom has chosen to be an atheist. Now, I'm still there seeking to show the love of God to him and encourage him to turn to Christ, but I'm pleased that Tom has the choice. So that if Tom did come to follow God, it would be because Tom wants to rather than because Tom's forced to. It's a great question. Yes, far away, nice and loud. Uh, just wondering on your second argument, how would you respond to the many worlds theory? So the concept that there are different universes and infinite chances of a universe being started up? Okay, this is a really good question. Uh, it's about the multiverse. So. Yes, it's true that this universe looks like it's been deliberately set up, well in fact it is set up in such a way that we can be here, but hang on a minute, what if there was an infinity of other possible universes? What was really happening was that all these possible universes were trying to come into existence and then the only reason why we're here is because we happen to be in the one universe where our numbers worked and that's why we're here. What's a good response to that? There's quite a few ifs and buts in this one. Let's just think about what exactly are we talking about with the multiverse. We're saying that there was some sort of universe-generating machine that was capable of generating every single possible universe. If such a multiverse factory existed, that in itself would have to be fine-tuned. It has to exist. It has to be made in such a way that it can start popping out all these universes. So it still requires fine-tuning. The universe generator requires fine-tuning. Even if such a fine-tuned universe generator exists, why would there be an infinity of possible universes? Why wouldn't there just be three? Why wouldn't there just be seven? The only way the multiverse objection even gets off the ground is if there's an infinity of possible universes. But I think one of the best responses to this point is to say, yes, the multiverse does exist. It exists in the mind of God. God was thinking through every single possible permutation of all the different numbers, the gravity, the uh, cosmological constant, all these different things, And eventually God thought, okay, here's the set of numbers that I know are going to work, and so there is a multiverse, it's in the mind of God, and that's how come we're here. Really good question. How about over here, what did you want to ask? Um, So my friend who claims that she's an
3: atheist um, says that in the creation story it says he created light and dark and called them day and night, so that must mean it is supposed to mean the same period of time as it does in the modern language.
0: Okay, this is a good question. It's about the Genesis account. It's about a literal understanding of night and day, and it's suggesting that the Genesis 1 account requires us as Christians to believe in a 24-hour, seven-day creation. Now, this is a big subject upon which People at New Day who are Christians and different churches will take different opinions. In fact, it might well be in this tent. There are Christians who have different views on whether the universe really was, whether the earth really was created in 24-7-hour days. My personal view is I have never thought that Genesis chapter 1 compels us to think that the creation days were 24-hour days. One of the reasons I think that is because we know that the seventh day is a long day, We're still in the seventh day, the day of rest. And there are other occasions in the book of Genesis when the word yom, that's the Hebrew word for day, is used in the book of Genesis, and it's definitely used to refer to a long period of time. So I think that the creation days were long days. I don't think they were literal 24-hour days. And I think that the universe is ancient, and I actually think that the universe began 13.7 billion years ago at that event, which science has confirmed definitely took place. It's nicknamed the Big Bang, but it was, as we saw in the talk, the beginning of space, time, matter, and energy. Now, that's just my opinion. I might be mistaken. But, of course, if that is the correct view, then there's absolutely no difficulty with reading Genesis uh, 1 as sort of an exalted prose. It's not a, a literal account of what happened uh, but it 's nevertheless a faithful and accurate account of what happened that 'd be my response anyway. good question. yes how about you over here go ahead
3: um, The videos that you were talking and what you were talking about were referencing
2: to the Bible well, most of the time. Um, when I go to my friends and try to convince them that God exists, I, they don 't believe that the
3: Bible is true so it 's hard to convince them that way. Do you know if there 's any other sources that um, prove Jesus'
2: resurrection and um, his existence?
0: Yeah, really good question. Um, If you start quoting the Bible to someone who doesn't believe it, they're not likely to turn around and say, oh, well, I must change my mind. So there's lots of different ways of looking at this. First of all, in the video, it did actually say, what if we were to just treat these documents as ancient documents? What if we don't treat them as inspired? I mean, lots of people in this tent think... Somehow God inspired the human beings who wrote down the New Testament. They kind of, the Holy Spirit guided or inspired them. Well, New Testament scholars don't think like that. Historians don't think like that. But what they do think is, oh my goodness, we have some really quite ancient documents here. For example, within this letter that we call 1 Corinthians… There definitely is a section in chapter 15 at the very start, first eight verses, where the writer is reporting a received tradition, and that list of the resurrection appearances of Jesus can be dated back to within 24 months of Jesus' resurrection. This is not like a Christian point of view. This is something which is a a view that's taken by New Testament historians and scholars who don't follow Christ. They think it's a received tradition, they think that because of the Aramaic words that appear in that passage, and so on and so forth. If you had someone who was extremely sceptical, you could say, okay, let's just put completely to one side the entire Bible. What would we know about Jesus if we completely discard or disregard the entire Bible? Well, we would look at a number of other documents we have which refer to Jesus. For example, we have the uh, historian Josephus, who makes two references to Jesus, um, both of which are very significant. We have Tacitus, the main Roman historian for the period. He mentions Jesus. We have Lucian of Samosata, and so on and so forth. We've got Pliny the Younger. We've got the Jewish Babylonian Talmud. There are I usually use, when I'm doing a talk at a university to a skeptical audience, I will work with seven, what I think are the best seven non-Christian sources, and I'll build a case for the historicity of Jesus from these seven documents, and I'll put up on the screen seven facts that we can be pretty confident about the historical Jesus without turning to the Bible. So that gets us up and running. And if you were talking to your friend, you could say, okay, let's put to one side the Bible. Here are what secular historians, non-Christian historians. A source like the Jewish Babylonian Talmud is anti-Christian. Tacitus is anti-Christian. So these are not sympathetic sources. However, I would be really keen to say, look, these documents that are printed in the New Testament, like, for example, the Gospel of Mark... We've got really good reasons to think this document was created on or before 60 AD. This is within the lifetime of the people who claim to have witnessed Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. Even if you don't think it's inspired by God, it's still a source. It's, it's, it's still a document that was handed down to us for antiquity. What does this document teach us? Can we learn anything from it? And I would encourage your friend to start thinking about that and realize how early some of these documents are? That's a really good question. Okay, over here, what did you want to ask?
3: Um, my parents are both atheists, but me and my brother are Christian. And How would I like, teach them about Christianity without like, pressuring them into
0: it? I missed the last two words.
3: Without like, like forcing them into Christianity, how would I teach them about it?
0: Okay, so there is absolutely nothing to be gained by trying to force your parents into Christianity. This may come as good or bad news, but I learnt from my own experience that my attempts to persuade people, this is shortly after I became a Christian, that Christianity is true, were totally undermined by my extremely selfish lifestyle. And I'm sure that you young men are ex- in completely the opposite case. But unfortunately for me, because I was living such a selfish life, for some reason, the people who I was talking to Jesus about, they didn't seem to be able to match up this sudden enthusiasm for Jesus with the fact that I still seem to be a very selfish person. So I've found over the years that if I start living a bit more like Jesus, that when I start talking about him, people start to take what I say a bit more seriously. In fact, one of my best friends at university, he once challenged me and said, look, you know, I've heard all this stuff about God and Jesus. Why is it that you're like this? That was a really humbling moment. So the more... I mean, I I can tell you stories about middle-aged people in Britain who've become Christians. And believe it or not, the first thing they say is, when my teenage son or daughter started to tidy their bedroom, I started to take it seriously. I thought it was a phase, a religious phase. I was worried that they joined a cult. But when I saw their behavior change... I started to think it might be real. I mean, this is the reality. So I would say, if you can live a consistent Christian life for a long period of time, you're gaining credibility all that time, and then eventually you may find there's an openness. Now remember, the content that we've just heard, most people in Britain have never heard any of that. People don't realize that there is this strong evidence. Because like I said in the talk, you're not going to get it. If you you watch Hollywood movies and watch the news, you're not going to hear the content that we just heard in the seminar this morning. So we've got to be sympathetic, realize there but for the grace of God go I, and keep trying to love people, and expect the Holy Spirit to work. Sometimes the Holy Spirit will do stuff that we weren't expecting. And i found that At some point in everyone's life, if you live to be 70 or 80 years old, there will come a point where even for five minutes, you are thinking, hang on a minute, is there a purpose to life? Maybe some life event has happened, there's been some catastrophe, some disaster in your own life, and in that moment, you are suddenly open. One of my friends from university was most resistant to Christianity. Thirteen years after we left university, there's a ring on the doorbell. He'd just driven about 150 miles to see me. Something had happened in his life, a catastrophic event. He was on my doorstep, and he said to me, Look, I, I need to talk to you about this. I've been reading Mark's gospel in the car, he said. He's suddenly open, despite all these years of resistance. And so there will be a point, if you hang in there with your parents if they're atheists, there will come a point where they're open, and if you're still in good relationship with them, for those, when that moment comes, there could be an open door. Let's have two more questions. Go for it, sir.
3: Um, Okay, so I have plenty of friends who are very different in cultures and religion, and when talking about their religions with each other, um, you can see that there's overlapping aspects of religion and how morals and right and wrong overlaps and how the Bible actually has parts of it which come from other books and the same thing goes the other way around. Um, I like to think that God has shown himself to other cultures and because us as humans interpret things differently from one another, we've actually created different versions of him and we've created different religions around him. And I, I think I believe that. God is actually the same throughout our planets. However, the fact that we, we interpreted him differently, yeah. we have this conflict between each other yeah. when, in fact, we actually serve the same God. Yeah,
0: so I, I think that your observation is correct in as much as you're quite right. As you look at different world religions, their social teaching is very similar. Jesus is not the only person who's saying it's a really good idea to think of other people before yourself. Jesus is not the only person who's saying living an unselfish life is the best way to go. There are other religious teachers who are making the same sorts of claims and social teaching. However, where I think you're mistaken is if you were to look behind those social teachings at the truth claims made by people like Muhammad, Confucius, and Jesus, you will find that Jesus is radically different from every other founder of a world religion. doesn't mean Christianity is true. It just means that Jesus is really different. Jesus is the only founder of a major world religion who is claiming to be God. That is a massive claim. It's a claim that Muhammad never made. It's a claim that Confucius doesn't make and so on. It's a claim that Buddha doesn't make. And when you look at the historicity of world religions like Islam and Christianity... There is a train smash when it comes to the person of Jesus. Jesus appears in the Quran and also in the New Testament. In the New Testament, all the records fit in with the non-Christian historians. Non-Christian sources tell us that Jesus was crucified. Secular history tells us that Jesus was crucified on the cross. The Quran makes an absolutely astonishing claim. In one of the surahs it says... The Jews at Medina were claiming that they crucified the Messiah, Jesus, but the Quran contradicts that claim, that boast, and says, assuredly, they did not kill him. I'm now quoting the Quran. Nor did they crucify him. They were under the impression that they had. The Quran claims six or seven hundred years after the fact, it contradicts secular history by claiming that Jesus never died on the cross, So Christianity and Islam cannot both be true on that point. It cannot be true that Jesus was being crucified and also not being crucified. It cannot be true true that Jesus died on the cross and also Jesus never died on the cross. So yes, superficially, world religions look very similar in their social teaching. But when you get back to basics, you can compare Buddhism and Islam Buddhism, let's say Hinduism in Islam, for example. Hinduism says that actually there's a wheel of reincarnation. Islam says, no, there isn't. There's a judgment day and there's heaven and hell. Everybody goes to one or the other. So whilst we might like to believe that all religions are equally true, common sense and history means they cannot all be equally true. If they're not all equally true, could it be that one of them is true? That's a decision that you and every single one of us have to make And when we turn to Jesus, we find something unique. We find a humble man who is claiming to be God. Anyone who went around saying that they were God, you and I would expect to find that person unbearably arrogant. Can you imagine how annoying that would be? To have someone claiming to be God, but rather than coming over as egotistic, as an egomaniac, what actually happened was that people thought Jesus was the most humble man who'd ever ever lived, and they turned to him in their thousands, and they still do. How cool is that? Thank you so much for your attention. It's been great being with you.